Hi, everybody. Pastor Paul here. You know, it's been a, a little bit of a while since I've done a podcast and been on social media because I've been in a writing project. You're going to see the results of that coming up down the line of a bunch of things. But it's it's made me think during this hiatus of a lot of things that I've been through over the last two years, and particularly some conversations that we've had on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. And so I want to present one to you that was recorded pre-COVID. I mean, doesn't that seem like about a decade ago? It's so hard to believe pre-Black Lives Matter, pre-ridiculous you know, ridiculous CRT arguments coming from the church, a conversation that challenged my view of race and color. Um, and I've loved this conversation ever since with a woman named Ashley Rojas, who's a leader in our community in taking care of people. And I could say in in the Latin culture of our city of Fresno, but I don't think that's necessarily a definition of it. I think she's somebody that's pushing to change things for everyone and particularly doing it in communities of color in our city. I, I don't want to overdefine it because I want you to hear what she has to say. A big part of what I've wanted to do with the podcast is what I call proximity. I want to get people to have conversations or hear conversations from people that they don't know normally interact with in their life. And Ashley was one of those people for me. Not that I don't interact with people of color, but somebody that would say, hey, some of your views of race, even though I feel like I've made a lot of strides, she challenged me and said, why don't we rethink some things? in our discussions these days. And it radically impacted my life. And I was thinking about this over the last couple of weeks and I thought, I'm gonna bring that podcast back. Now I was nervous because we didn't do video of the podcast then and we actually did it interviewing each other across a table rather than on the screen. So there's not gonna be video of this one for those of you watching on YouTube, those listening on Apple Podcasts, you'll never know the difference. But I think the conversation is so important I hope you'll be okay that you can't see the conversation between Ashley Rojas and me, but that you'll listen and you'll listen with an open heart because I think it's a very important conversation and it may be challenging for some of you. It may poke a little bit, kind of like when when Jesus said, drink my flesh and eat my blood, uh, drink my blood, eat my flesh with people. And they a bunch of them said, we're out of here. This one may pinch a little bit but it's so worth hearing. And this is such an amazing woman in our culture of our city today that I'm proud to know her. And so I hope you'll listen in to a really important conversation about race in America today. It's what I'm about, is challenging our mindsets and what we've believed. And I hope you'll let yourself be challenged today on the podcast. And even as you listen, let, re, let me remind you that God is not mad at you and God is not mad at that person you think God should be mad at. Life can be very different if we see the world that way. Now to this extraordinary conversation with Ashley Rojas. I hope you enjoyed the podcast from pastor-paul.com. For those willing to listen, learn, and have eyes to see and ears to hear, this is the Nonpartisan Evangelical, where we're challenging the mindset of right-wing Christianity and encouraging people to have their minds renewed and hearts transformed. Let's have better conversations about the life modeled in the Bible so we can truly tell the world God is not mad at you. This is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast at npepodcast.com. I always say I want to give proximity. I want to hear voices of people that they don't hear on a daily basis in their neighborhood, perhaps, or just in their daily conversation. And I was recently having a conversation with somebody and it challenged me, made me think, and I thought, okay, that's a person I've got to get on the NPE podcast. So here she is, Ashley Rojas, who in her professional life is executive director of Fresno Barrios Unidos, and I hope my gringo 
use of that title is okay. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, and then is just a, a very wise person in her own life. And so welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Yeah. So you, it, it, and just by your position professionally, we, we get the idea that you're working with communities that are different than maybe some of our white evangelical community know about or, or are very familiar with. And so even, even as we were getting prepared for the show, I was asking you, what is the, what is the proper way we speak of the community that you, you deal with and work with on a daily basis? Yeah, and and what I was sharing with you um, was the way that Fresno Barrios Unidos um, and the way that I, in in my professional work, um, talk about my community when asked, right, to describe them in in a way um, that fits with public health models or um, even philanthropy, etc. Um, we will talk about our community as um, a group of folks. Um, often black indigenous people of color who have been historically and systemically put at risk. And that's in place of, you know, you might've heard folks say like at risk youth or even, you know, at promise youth. Um, but what we really want to acknowledge is that there are systemic and historical factors that have um, created the conditions in which our community live and that there is no innate risk or um, flaw in those people. So when we say at risk youth, we're almost, creating a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways? Right. We're projecting onto them a a deficit. And we're saying, you know, and this is sort of gets into um, school systems will say a lot about like an academic achievement gap, but they won't talk about an expectation gap where do we expect the same level of success from all young people? Um, Are we providing young people with equitable investments to reach the same goals? Um, But instead, we'll just talk about sort of like the failure um, without acknowledging um, the inequity of investment from yeah. the community as a whole and not just the school system. So so let me ask a question, and I apologize ahead of time for sort of the ignorance and flippancy of this question, but I guess the question that a lot of people would ask in talking to somebody like you is, you know, what's the problem? I, I, I think the people that are in sort of the white evangelical middle middle to upper middle class socioeconomic groups, I think they want everybody to be happy and healthy and taken care of and truly have a heart for that. But they just are kind of like, what's the deal? And it feels like we've done a lot and still we have the problems. And so can I ask very gently and lovingly, what's the problem? And how do you define it for people that that may not work with the groups that you work with? That's a that's a lot I could I could talk for a while about this. Um, you can't answer that in, in three sentences or less. Huh? No, what's the problem? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, again, you'll hear folks say like a uh, l- lack of um, wealth distribution or, um, you know, higher crime rates due to poverty and all of these things that are very much so um, documentable, you know, issues. Right. Um, but what we don't often acknowledge again is the systemic and historical um context that has curated communities like the one I'm from and and the which is the very one I serve. I grew up in Southeast. Um my mom was fifteen when I was born, which, you know, is a result of a whole set of circumstances. Hmm. Um and um my family still lives in the same community that I now have the privilege of serving. Um and so it it really is much deeper than um a single problem or even a single generation that we have to actually um understand uh the historical context that has created um the you know town, city, states, borders, um policies, laws, regulations, and, and who were they created for and, and you know, um, for and by and and who was actually designed out of um, those things. And so I think it's really important to, um, you know, step into our discomfort uh, with a lot of love and tenderness because it will be um, a painful journey for us all to um, honestly um, explore our history Hmm. Our shared history and then the history that has been um, manufactured to uphold a certain ideology. Um, and then the history from some of us that has been stolen. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So you're saying some heavy things there. <laughs> <laughs> the, the problem is is dense if you really want to unpack it. Yeah. I mean, we can keep doing things like, um, you know, 
giving folks bus passes so that they, you know, have transportation. Um, but until we truly acknowledge the root cause of the, of the wound in, in our shared community, um, and I don't just mean Fresno, I mean in our country, um, where's, where's this wound coming from? It, it's like if you keep putting band-aids over a, you know, a festering wound, it's not going to get better. It's going to start looking different. You might get a growth over it, um, but it's not going to get, it's not going to be healed. Yeah. And I, I think that's important. And, and that's why, and again, I'm sorry for the insensitivity of the question, but I'm trying to think of, you know, as our, as people are listening to this, sometimes this is where, where their mind sort of goes. And so what does that difficult conversation sound like? And, and part of what I'm doing, if you're listening here, and, and we have listeners from around the country. So one of the things that Ashley's talking about here is Southeast Fresno, Southwest Fresno are kind of known as the poorer areas of our town, while the people of more resource has have moved north and north and north as the as the city boundaries have grown, and and so we do have sort of this feel of you have these left behind cultures that are are, are struggling a little bit more. But I know even that language is not fair to the people that live in those neighborhoods. That, like you said, you love the neighborhood. You wouldn't you wouldn't leave it. You just want to see more opportunity for yeah. The and success who live there. for that neighborhood for me doesn't mean it looks like. Our neighborhoods in North Fresno. Right. It means it looks more like itself. Um, it means it um, is as colorful and vibrant and multi generational and multi ethnic and um, collaborative as our communities are organically, um, with more sovereignty, um, with more resource, um, because it won't look the same because we are not the same. Hmm. So. It's not necessarily just about getting a target to come into the neighborhood. Huh? No. <laughs> <laughs> Which will make everything all right if you, get a, if you can get a target in. I would I would take a couple of grocery stores before yeah. I, before a target. Yeah. And, and there is a there is a dearth of all those things and 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 uh, and healthcare op- places to go for healthcare and all of those things mm-hmm. and those are are valuable and important. Competent but, quality healthcare that values again the cultural um, orientation to wellness that our community carries. Um, again, it's when the things are not designed with you in mind hmm. um, that that they don't cultivate the solution they're aiming to. Wow, tell me more about that. What? How do you see that happening, or how have you seen that? Happen? I think there's a movement in in health um, in health systems and public health um, to uh, acknowledge. Um, Culture, and this is something Fresno Barrios Unidos has done for a number of years in alliance with um, folks like the National Compadres Network and Sons and Brothers, is um, and locally a group of um, elders um, under an organization named uh, Integral Community Solutions Institute. All of these folks who have been doing this work for um, decades since the 60s, like original movement leaders, um, reclaiming their identity as Chicanos, as Latinx people, as Black people, um, under these same systems saying, you know, we are not um, of European descent. We are not Western white people. Our culture is different. We have different ways of engagement, um, different family structures. Um, and if a health system was never designed with me in mind and my culture and my history and my norms and my nuances, um, then every time I go to get what I need from that system, I'm having to navigate hurdles, um, that are there because it was not designed with me in mind. Hmm. So that's interesting. And, and, Maybe and this this sort of plays into a lot of the national narrative of things right now that maybe we as white people need to understand that being us isn't necessarily American. You know that that is not the whole definition of what is what is American. Is that is that a fair part of the conversation? I think that um, being American um, is a whole conversation on its own what yeah. does it mean to be american um who is american who is america um these are all questions that i think um are beyond deserving of conversation and and so um rich with depth that it's a little hard to find a place to start um but again so that looked like that was painful for you to to think about that you know i i thought about um the doctrine of discovery um and even just the claim that you have arrived to a place and so now it's yours. Hmm. Um, 
my family um, has been on this land since as long as anybody can remember. Um, I did 23andMe, and um, I think it's over 45% Native American. Yeah. Um, to Native to the land that is now Mexico, Texas, and California. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as far as my DNA tells me, I've always been on this land. Um, and I You've lived here longer than I have. <laughs> and I don't think <laughs> um, I fit like the American identity. Hmm. Because America, um, or because I'm older than America, because yeah. where I come from, the people I'm from are older than America. Hmm. So tell me why, why does that bring pain for you? And, and I'm, and I'm not saying that's a weakness at all. I, I just love to explore. No, I'm, I'm really tender hearted. Yeah. Um, and I've worked really hard to cultivate. Um, well, I hope it's okay that yeah. I ask, and you can always tell yeah. me stop, Paul, at any time. <laughs> I'm just, I just love exploring this stuff because I, I think it's really important for us to hear it, mm-hmm. and I don't think we've heard a voice like yours often enough. Mm. I could point in the direction of a lot of brilliant people yeah. Um, yeah. that I learn from every single day too, yeah. and and it's because I'm choosing to learn, um, and I'm choosing to unlearn, um, and I think that that's a choice more people. Um, would benefit from making is that I'm going to pursue my learning and unlearning and not just wait for it to find me. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, it just reminds and me And that's that, really all of our responsibility, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That we have to continue to learn and unlearn and um, live in that place of malleability because we are all sharing space. Hmm. Right. This is a team sport, no matter how we want right. to think of it. Um, and so why it brings pain, um, I think because I have heard a lot of story, um, I also think because um, I carry wounds that have been passed down from generations of navigating um, this experience of dominance right like we're going to take this it's ours now it's this way and this is the way to be um and this is professional and this is not Mm. and um all of that um rule setting right by folks who are new (laughs) um it it lives in in my body in different ways and um the more i do my own healing work the easier it is for me to feel into my community um, and into my um, generations. Mm -hmm. Like when I talk to my grandmother and she tells me stories about boarding schools in Texas um, and about being punished for speaking her own language, um, that wounds me Mm -hmm. because at a certain point, um, folks in my family and folks in families like mine stop speaking our language for safety. Wow. So we lose our culture um, to assimilate and sometimes we reject our culture for assimilation and safety and access to resource. Mm -hmm. Um, And then some of us become the ones harming each other the most. Um, And it's all the complexity. It's the complexity of that whole experience um, that when I really take a moment to sit in it, um, it becomes really visceral and I can feel it. Yeah. Yeah. So even I would assume a, a, a term like make America great again, doesn't sound like a very appetizing choice and possibility maybe for you. I often just want to ask folks, and what does that mean to you? Yeah. What is, what is your, tell me about your great America. And what, do you get any answers to that? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, you know, I'll get a lot of really proud statements of like, you know, patriotism and, you know, protection and we're, we're, we're here to be hardworking people. And, um, and it's not often that I'll push too much further than that, because again, it's about like, am I really willing to do this right now? (laughs) Especially if it's in my personal (laughs) life on my downtime and it's something I can really, I don't get a lot of choices Mm -hmm. in terms of, um, having this conversation or not. And sure. I made the choice that this is my work. It's not just my life, but, um, in my life, right? I live this. And so other folks get to opt into learning about 
systemic oppression, about generational violence, about the impacts of genocide and human trafficking as the origins of a country. Um, and some of us just live it. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's not often that I'll opt into um, <laughs> a conversation to that degree. I mean, with friends of mine, yeah, we'll kick around a can all day. Um, but somebody who I can feel is is just deep in their pride and um i i'm gonna make the invest i'm gonna make the choice to not invest my energy there yeah yeah i like i call that the the people with eyes to see and ears to hear and if they just are shut down to anything it's really kind of a waste of air and space to spend yeah. a lot of time talking about it yeah and so that i i mentioned to this to you earlier too and so that i don't hurt myself with anger or frustration i just try to have compassion for them mm -hmm. i really do and not in a pitying way at all but truly how do i sit in my values and beliefs and cultivate compassion for somebody um who is holding on to an ideology so firmly and um you know get curious about why you know they're holding on so tight to something um and whenever i've known people to hold on that tight to things um it's usually because they're afraid or they don't want to feel like they don't know because not knowing things is really destabilizing mm -hmm. um so i just try to fall back into my work and you know go do something that's good for me yeah and i i think it is a lot that culture is changing um I mean, just the the very easy to look around us and say, okay, the baby boomer generation is is coming to its end. Uh, the millennial generation is is uh, is I start say ascending. I don't know if that's the right term. Is, is stepping into leadership roles. I, I was telling somebody this last week. You know, millennials aren't kids anymore. They have kids. I'm now. thirty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and so just that is causing attention. And I think if you have people who aren't willing to learn and adapt and adjust, then it does become a, a, a sort of fight of victims saying, you know, these people are trying to take something from us. And, and parenting styles are shifting. I think yeah. like um, my mom isn't a boomer. She was, again, 15 when I was born. So she's, um, I think she's Gen Z. She'd be an Xer. Yeah, she's Gen X. <laughs> yeah. Um, but she's married to a boomer. Okay. And so as a young, and she didn't get married to him until I was about 15, which is a pretty tough time to try to step in and, you know, assert authority um, for him anyway. And yeah, it was really complicated. He had this whole other way of parenting that was um, really dominant space. Like, no, I'm older than you. And I said this, um, which I think is true to the culture of, of like boomer culture. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, this is the rules. Um, and, um, number one, I didn't grow up like an average kid. I played parent to my little sister because my mom was at work and I had to assume responsibility and, um, be on the team. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, we had a little bit of a culture clash. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of that going around these days. Yeah. But I think, and I think what's in, what I enjoy about the conversation is, I just think we need to hear hear the pain, and so I'm I am sorry the question draws pain, but I think it's important to hear, and and important. I think it's a really hard concept for even somebody like me, a Midwestern boy growing up and moved to California in college, that even the concept of what is what is American, and that in a lot of ways we sort of say you have to become us mm -hmm. to be okay and appropriate, and and even that being a, a, a difficult or a difficulty for somebody to hear, then if I'm living as a victim of, hey, everything's changing around me and I don't want it to change, then I become defensive and mm -hmm. can't hear that. So mm -hmm. in some ways, it's the conversations I'm trying to have with people is like, hey, let's lay down our defenses mm -hmm. and start to hear why we're in this clash, why people are being hurt by what we do mm -hmm. when our intention isn't to hurt, mm -hmm. but it is, you know. Mm -hmm. so. I just think a lot about just mortality and how much human beings people resist um don't want to be adjacent to the to our own mortality our own fragility um you know we'll intellectualize ourselves away from um the fact that our bodies are primitive they're simple and they have an expiration date and we don't get to be doing this forever yeah. um and so sometimes i just again, try to sit in my compassion with folks and 
and like they're wrestling with like a generational shift. And I think folks are also wrestling with um, feeling their own mortality, which I think happens at every intersection of generations. Um, there's a little bit of a power struggle. Um, and, you know, and I think that's also because as a, as Americans, we don't center and celebrate our elders. They just sort of become obsolete. Right. We're obsessed with youth, with power, with strength, with, um, the, with ableness, right? Being able-bodied. Right. Um, and once you don't have those things, you, you lose social or cultural value. Yeah. Um, and so I wonder about that too. Um, and in my community, right? Our elders are sort of the center. Yeah. Our elders and our littles, they're, they're the heart. Um, like, you know, I canvas and I knock on my great grandmother's door and sit in bed with her for 20 minutes. And, you know, that's what it's about. Yeah. And if the two generations could really honor each other that mm -hmm. way, that, that would take away a lot of the fear. And mm -hmm. then it's this idea of, oh, if I'm on the government dole, that's a, that's a negative thing. Mm -hmm. And our, and our boomers in some ways are, are headed that way and they're yeah. getting government health care and, and social security and all and those that things. we will all need help at some point. Yeah. And if we were lucky enough to not need help when we were younger, um, hopefully we have the humility when we're older to, um, to settle into that help. Yeah. It's really challenging. Hi everyone, this is Paul. Thanks for letting me interrupt for just a moment. I want to tell you about something we have coming up that I think is going to be really cool. And it happens this Sunday, if you're listening to this before October 24th. October 24th, 5.30 Pacific, we're having a webinar that I've entitled, Jesus Was a Very, Very Bad Evangelical. I've had many of you asking me over the years, can you kind of tell us your story of deconstruction of your faith and the journey that you're walking on and facilitate discussion on the topics around deconstruction? And we're going to do that. We're having a couple of cohorts called Deconstruction U, one online, one in person here locally in Central California. And it all kicks off with this webinar of Jesus, the very, very bad evangelical. If you go in my bio and click on the link tree, it'll take you to the place you can register. The webinar is absolutely free. And the cohorts that come after, these five-week cohorts, uh, that'll be uh, ten, uh, eight topics of discussion around deconstruction. There's a cost to them because I'm making a living uh, spreading this message that God is not mad at you, but I hope you'll check it out. Let me invite you to join us for this webinar on Sunday, October 24th, 5.30 p.m. called Jesus is a Very, Very Bad Evangelical. And we talk about the fact that Jesus was the original deconstructing person of his faith. And we'll talk more about that. I hope you'll join me for what I think is going to be a really cool time to make sure that if we're walking out a deconstructing of our faith, that we're not doing it alone and we're not doing it without support for that, that journey and challenge for that journey. So I hope you'll join us. The webinar is called Jesus is a Very, Very Bad Evangelical, a Deconstruction You webinar. And it happens Sunday, October 25th at 5.30 p.m. Pacific. I will see you there. Now, back to our intriguing, brilliant, and fun discussion with Ashley Rojas of Fresno Barrios Unidos on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast at npepodcast.com. We have Ashley Rojas with us today. She's executive director professionally of Fresno Barrios Unidos and personally just a super awesome person and a 30-year-old millennial, as we've learned now. <laughs> and I, I love the other day I posted something on Facebook and, and you came on and pushed back and I was talking about this idea of what if we lived in the radical middle if we weren't totally beholden to either side of the political spectrum but but could take the best of everything and I thought it was a really great concept and you came in and pushed back on me and uh, so I thought that would be a fun conversation so what was your pushback on my idea of the radical middle I think I said yes and yes and. I okay. think that was right. my pushback what's <laughs> well, a gentle pushback and then yeah. I I said I'd love to chat with you about this yes. and so um I think um the middle is a really I think wholesome place to want to be really honest. And I um, can hear folks wholeheartedly yearning for that place because right. that place in a perfect world 
would be the the place, right? Like, right. Like right here where everybody fits. Um, and with our current, I think our current place in the way we're experiencing politics um, and the extremism on both ends, certainly, yeah. but um, the extremism of our current administrated, our current presidential administration um, makes the middle um, a little bit of a cop out. Gotcha. Um, I, I really can see why people want to be there. And right now is not the moment um, because, because some of us, um, some of us are dying because of this. Hmm. And so it, it just makes the middle um, feel like a gut punch a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I don't think saying like um, that I'm deserving of resource, I'm deserving of more than survival, I'm deserving of um, access to resources that truly don't belong um, to those who are hoarding them. Um I don't think that that takes anything from folks who are on the right um, f- for reasons softer than the extremism of the current administration. And so I don't think you lose anything by siding with those of us who are who stand to lose a lot. So to you, the middle is is not standing with people that need people to stand with them. Right. In a, in a season where, so tell me how, how is, how, how are the, the people that, and again, I'm sorry, I don't know all that, but kind of the, the communities that you deal with, how are they experiencing the political atmosphere today? Because we've talked a little bit about that, you and I, and I find, I find the take on that interesting and important for people to know. Mm-hmm. And I know you don't want to get too political and your job doesn't even allow you to get too political, <laughs> but maybe just how, how that's experienced. You were telling me about that and I found that interesting. Yeah, we've talked a lot about, and I'll just talk about one, one point. Um, I mean, I could, I could go at this from a couple of different ways, but let's say like immigration, right. Um, and everybody will say like Obama was doing it too. Um, but, or, and, um, the rhetoric, right. Um, folks that are being, um, like dog whistled to um, come out of the shadows, right? Like th- that um, and the psychological right trauma that then manifests physically into actual disease in my community. Mm. Um, that's what I'm talking about is that like this rhetoric um, and this is, I think, what, what I try to get out with almost everything is that- and the re- like, I'm Sorry to interrupt, but yeah. the rhetoric being- Certain immigrants are less desirable. They're coming to take from us. Yeah. They're sending their rapists and murderers. And then we have a mass shooting in Texas where somebody targets Latino people. Right. Um. So yeah, that that's what I'm talking about. Is yeah. that's those are the dog whistles. Um. And when you um are reckless in leadership, um, there's a massive fallout. Um. W- we support young people who um, in our monthly healing circles will say like, yeah, I don't even know if my mom, like sometimes I'm at school and I don't even know if she's going to be home when I get there Yeah, because Trump is threatening ice raids um, and our city isn't a sanctuary city and our county is attempting to put Trump language yeah. into our county <laughs> board of supervisors. You, you know what I mean? So it's like, um, yeah, if I'm worried that my mom won't be home, um, I probably don't really care about what I'm learning in class. And even if I can focus on it as a distraction, um, I'm having to battle this thing living in my body, my mm-hmm. my heart. And so th- that's sort of what I'm talking about is um, it manifests differently. It's not just a political talking point. It's not just a debate. It's not just a strategy to win voters. Like these are real lives. Um as a woman who um, has done work to heal from sexual abuse, um, my body is mine. I am sovereign. And to have a, 
administration that wants to take my sovereignty over my own body from me um, is really, it's really triggering. And I have to um, step into my healing work again to reclaim myself um, and to not um, fall into the fear that is being triggered and um, the um, powerlessness that I know um, when your body is not yours. And so, yeah, all of these things are real. Yeah. So I pastored a a church for a long time that was mainly white and evangelical and have certainly seen the, for me, the disconnect between what I read in the Bible and extreme right-wing politics. I I don't actually see that they line up very well. You have to really stretch some of those (laughs) verses to make it work. I have many good friends who are, love God and love people, and they totally disagree with me on that. But the the thing that really got to me and has, has caused it sort of a change in us and in our household is that we thought most of that was benign, that it was off. It wasn't exactly where being Christ-like was, but it was fairly harmless. And hearing stories like yours where it's like, hey, this isn't harmless at all. Mm-hmm. This is extremely harmful mm-hmm. to people who are American people, um, when we start to think of people as others and we can dehumanize them and take skin off of them and make them uh, something subhuman, Mm -hmm. we can do terrible things. Like I live just a few blocks from where we put American citizens into camps because they looked Japanese and we were afraid of Japanese people. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've been able to, as a country, um, engage with that narrative. Um, less so than we've been able to engage with the narrative of genocide and indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Governor, governor Newsom was the first governor of California to acknowledge um, indigenous peoples of this land and to apologize um, for what happened and apologies, right? Folks are like, so what if they're going to say sorry? And it's not about sorry, right? Yeah. That right. doesn't fix anything. But when you speak truth, we can start truly healing. Mm-hmm. But until then, it doesn't happen. And yeah. we struggle with um, that in a lot of ways. But the Japanese internment was something that we we found our way back to in a pretty quick way. Um, I'm sure Japanese people have a lot of feelings about that, that I, I don't share that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to me sort of what we're willing to name and what we're willing, what we're not yeah. willing to. I think it's a, I think it's a good a good example to look at because I think we all do acknowledge that that mm-hmm. that was really wrong mm-hmm. um, that the Joseph McCarthy co- communist uh, congressional hearings were really wrong mm-hmm. and and that's our capability as a people and and I think if we can start to tie that to uh, well even now in Tulsa Oklahoma they're looking at you know thousands of of black people were were killed and thrown mm-hmm. into mass graves mm-hmm. and and start to say these these are atrocities akin to anything else that's happened in the history of the world, Mm -hmm. then I think we can start to, again, get get a little bit humbler in who we are as a people and and start to say, I mean, for me, when we start putting kids in cages at the border, we have to say, no, we have promised ourselves we would never go here again. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I try to kind of tie those things together. Yeah, and there's a quote, I'm going to mess it up, but it's like, until the story is told, you know, from the perspective of the lion, like the hunter will always be glorified or however that quote goes. Yeah. Um, but it's sort of how we tell American history. We tell it from the perspective of the European um, settler, right? Right. Um, and what that ultimately comes back to is people, you know, we have to trace that back to we won, we took it, and mm-hmm. so it's ours. And mm-hmm. now anybody else who says that doesn't work for me is mm-hmm. now an enemy to our culture in mm-hmm. some way. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but none of us really want to be the, the despotic uh, conqueror. No. And and nobody wants to feel guilty yeah. or shame. Um, and, um, and I've been trying to really sit with, with that. And, um, yeah, how and do we, I'm looking for that language and how to be able to have that conversation with people before they get yeah, so defensive. F- so far, Mark Charles is the only person I've heard who t- can talk about can talk about white guilt and white shame and how it manifests in um you know 
belligerent rage at times, right? Like this, how do, you know, this avoidance of taking ownership or like we hear the like white lives matter or all lives matter. Um, there's nothing wrong with being white. And it's like, nobody's saying any of those things. Um, but we're, what we are saying is that something happened here. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, the very basic in Fresno where we are is there was, there, we have to acknowledge that at very least there were redlining laws that made sure that people of color couldn't go north of a particular barrier. That happened. It's documented. And even when it became illegal, it continued to happen for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And, and to be able to say, and ultimately what I try to say to my white conservative friends, that impacts the economy of, of all of us. You know, mm-hmm. if you want to put it into a, a conservative context mm-hmm. until we can resolve those issues, Fresno can never be the city that it potentially could be. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's imperative for my well-being, which is a bad context to put it into, but sometimes you got to convince people there's a reason mm-hmm. other than just as humans, we should care. And as Christians, we're commanded to care from, from my perspective. Mm-hmm. But this is, we, we can't, re- there are some things that are just never going to get fixed until we do come to that reality and say, Hey, part of the history that I'm, a, that I've inherited. Mm-hmm is my responsibility to to revisit and bring healing to so we can really see things change. And to maybe to maybe not um or maybe what I'm trying to say is that the way that manifests is not in leadership or leadership at the front anyway. Mm-hmm. That what it looks like to be helpful in amending um this wound is um listening is deepening your learning is um facilitating the healing of those who have been impacted um i think you know a lot of this like language can still feel like it's my job to save or rescue or elevate or lift these people right Hmm. still the othering and so it's like yes even if you're doing it in a caring way you're still and and because again we're not asking to be rescued we're asking for equitable access to resources that have always belonged to us <laughs> and that the deficits you per- not you but that are perceived about right. us right you um, can say you it's okay <laughs> i'm learning too <laughs> the deficits perceived about us are um projections of your own mind hmm. i have no wow. deficits i am wholly capable i am wholly worthy and it has been by design that i have been barred from access um, and it is by design that um, I have been wounded in the ways that I have, right? And not just whiteness, capitalism, patriarchy, um, the depth of these and the interconnectedness of these things can't be denied either. Because not only am I a person of color, Latina, um, I identify as a queer person, I identify as a, as a queer woman. Um, and so when you add in those layers, um, you start experiencing or noticing more, right? Yeah. And and we look at those and classify them not just as unique or wonderful in that we're all different and we have great things to offer to the culture together, which is the the theory of what America is. Mm-hmm. But we start to identify those as as negatives mm-hmm. and um, or or that this is good and this is bad. Yeah, or outside the norm of what is acceptable. Right. Right, which is cis, hetero, capitalist, patriarchy. (laughs) (laughs) And what's so wrong with that, I guess? I mean, it's interesting because I did have a conversation with a friend this weekend, and I'm going to recommend he listen to this podcast. So he's probably (laughs) listening right now as I say this. But his, his conversation with me was... You know, at the end of the day, the economy is good and, and that helps everybody. And, uh, you know, black unemployment is at an all time low, as the president likes to say a lot. And, mm-hmm. and so again, it goes back to our original question. What's the problem? At the end of the day, why wouldn't I just vote my pocketbook mm-hmm. and everybody else's pocketbook? Mm-hmm. And yeah, I wish he wouldn't tweet. I wish he would quit tweeting, but, <laughs> but these things are really harmful to people in hearing that that harm is really important in the midst of making our pocketbook decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's what's like the ROI. If that's where your money, if that's your priority, what do you get and what do you lose? Yeah. And what do we all lose? We lose brilliance. We lose um, 
culture, we lose flavor, we lose life, we lose um, so much vibrancy when when we are whittled away and whittled away and only those that fit this mold can thrive here. Wow. We lose so much of each other. Yeah. And we hide so much of ourselves and then we suffer. And then we see the health issues we see in our communities. Um, I would also mention to your friend <laughs> that substance use is at an all-time high, um, suicide, mm-hmm. um, anxiety, depression, PTSD. Um, like, we are a country that is not well. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, is your pocketbook really what what you're paying most attention to? Yeah. Um, because... Folks are in so much pain and and unconsciously even um, that we're harming ourselves and we're harming each other and we're destroying our planet. Mm. And, and I wanted to bring this issue into it because even here locally, we we had a, a, a mayoral election and and I know that and even that you know a, a friend of ours told my wife, hey the the North Fresno Church elects the mayor of Fresno. We all, and he just said it in a way of like, that's a fact. We all know that. And, and I know that election was difficult for, for your community and, and still to be decided as we're, as we're talking, we still don't know the outcome of the election, but we, but, um, so I'm trying to figure out how to keep this, keep this from out of nonpartisan. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Good word. Um, but the thing that was was important again, as as you and I were talking about this, is like you had young people ready to ask questions at a mayoral forum, and then the Republican candidate refused to show up, mm-hmm. and I think even said didn't feel safe to show up at the event. and And what does that mean to to your group of people and the and the the young people that you were working with in that? It's a reminder that folks with power don't have to care about mm. what you think. And that's, that's, that's where rage comes from. That's where a lot of like, when you see people really angry, it's because, um, we show up, we do our part, we, um, engage in dialogue and discourse, we elevate our issues. Um, and at the end, you have to be really gentle to us, don't you? (laughs) And at the end of the day, and at the end of the day, I can even feel you doing it today. So thank you for being gentle. And at the end of the day, we, it's decided whether or not we're telling the truth, whether or not we're worthy of being f- accounted for, factored in, considered. Um, and so it is a it is a really frustrating process. And even even before that, um, when we were doing our Fresno was looking for your chief of police, um, you know, brand committed to doing a series of community listening sessions. Our current mayor. Mm-hmm. And um, okay. Law enforcement has has the culture of law enforcement. Um, and this is all by evidence of arrest rates. You can see that there's a racial disparity and that there is also a disparity in um, over-policing of certain communities and mm-hmm. others, especially here in Fresno, um, what communities are considered dangerous and not. Um, <clears throat> and so our young people are deeply impacted by this, personally, generationally, et cetera. Um, and so what do we do? Show up to every listening session, support young people to step into their healing so that they can speak truth about how they've been impacted mm-hmm. and what they hope for our community. Um, whole hearts on the table. You, you said you're going to listen. Here we are. Um, what happens? First of all, they publish a report that hard to read doesn't tell a story. So we published a parallel report that was everything we heard our young people say in these meetings, everything our community asked for, um, things we demanded. Um, they make, they had made a commitment to integrate community voice. Um, the last minute again, because they can, they decided to bypass the process. Yeah. So they put in an interim. They put in somebody and, you know, I've, I've spoken with Chief Hall um, and 
for me, this isn't about Chief Hall. Um, right. But he, he said, I didn't apply. <laughs> I didn't want the job. And I don't really know why they put me in this position. Oh, wow. Right? Um, he says, you know, I think I'm figuring it out now, but I didn't get it. And and I think, you know, I have paying attention to, to what he's up to. And um, I have appreciation for some some of the things he've, he's done. And, um, and still then when that happened, they moved even the announcement of the new chief to a um, secured – um, media room in a government building that we could not access. Mm. They locked us out of the process physically and <laughs> like in every way possible. And so when our young people are like, hey, Miss Ashley, what the heck? <laughs> and I have to sit in front of them and say, I'm so sorry. Yeah. It happened again. I'm so sorry. And how does that impact then the the feeling of disenfranchisement for I told somebody these are the moments where you get no no justice, no peace. Yeah. This is when folks get so frustrated. This is this is why. Because yeah. we showed up, we did our thing, we showed up with less resource, in more pain, and we still showed up. And so to still be discounted. It just reinforces, right? And then that's why I don't get upset with people who, um, for their own sanity and well-being, have disengaged. Mm. I'm, I will, I'm like a harm reductionist through and through. I will not ask you to do something that causes you deep pain, um, without the supports and the network. And and I don't have the all the resources to take care of all of my folks to get everybody there. Um. And so when folks disengage, I, I will sit with them in that and be like, I feel you. I sit in that too sometimes. There's, so, a, lo there's a lot of days I don't want to show up. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's why when there's a flashpoint, then people start throwing bricks through windows. Mm -hmm. Because now it's, it's, hit a, it's, it's bubbling over what has been contained inside painfully for a long time. Mm -hmm. I've had to... to spend so much time and money um, learning how to facilitate my suffering in a way that people can hear, yeah. in a way that creates change, in a way that doesn't hurt myself or other people. Um, and, and, and some people just don't have to do that. Yeah. So I'm a big believer that uh, the millennials are going to change this. That that you you see what and and I'm an Xer so I I'm just right on the border so don't blame me I, no I'm kidding um, and and I'm certain of that and I'm certain of that there's there's something really special in your generation that's going to to bring about this in a really amazing way but what you told me is that's that's not good enough for today mm -hmm. that doesn't help today does mm -hmm. it yeah it's that folks don't get. I work in youth youth organizing, right? And mm -hmm. a lot of folks are saying, you know, it's the generation behind me. It's not even the millennials. Yeah. Um, they're louder, they're fiercer, they're queer, they're less apologetic, all the things, right? Um, and I'm like, and it doesn't absolve us of continuing to um, break down doors to make things less painful for them. Yeah. Um, because I will never ask for a young person um, to do something I wouldn't be willing to do. Right. Um, I would never ask a young person to hold something that's too heavy for me. Um, and so if I'm not going to be there holding it with them, I'm not going to ask them to do that because I'm going to first wonder why I didn't pick up my part. Um, and we can all do something. Um, and so I, I believe that too. Yeah. Um, young people are, um, incredible. <laughs> um, and, um, it's unjust to pass the baton just yeah. yet completely, but to, in, in what we should be doing instead is making invitations to collaborate. Um, like if you don't have young people around your table in your strategy sessions um if you are not inviting critique from young people um 
You said men- you're part of the problem. Somebody, what did you say? <laughs> over, if you're over forty, you need to be mentored by somebody under thirty. Absolutely, <laughs> <laughs> and authentically as equals. Yeah. I think like we do a lot of like adultism, like oh, you don't know, and you've only how old are you, kid? Ha! Huh. Right. Um, and and I sit with young people that are so wise, um, so kind. Um, I learn something from them every single day. Um, so. I'm capable, hopeful, um, persistent, all the, all the things, thoughtful, like critical thinkers who are like, Hey, have you considered this? I'm like, I never thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. And so all of that is why when you hear somebody say, it's good to be a moderate, what you hear is, Hey, you're not coming to stand with me today with the people that are hurting. Yeah. What I hear is, you know, or what I think is I'm glad you're comfortable. Yeah. It's a lot of people aren't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it's not that comfortable a place to be today, but I love hearing that because, you know, one of the one of the things that happened in my life was reading uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail. I, mm. I remember it was New Year's Day 2017 and, and it jumped off the page that he said, I'm most disappointed in the white moderates mm-hmm. that keep telling us to wait for a better time. Mm-hmm. And, and you keep saying you love me. Yeah. And uh, he said, I thought and Cornell I, West says justice is what love looks like in public. Hmm. So, so there, there is a demand on us. Then. You don't get to love me in the shadows. You don't get to love me when it's safe yeah. um, because I don't have those privileges. Yeah. And so you show up and you show up in front of me and before me and you and you knock down the people who I don't have access to mm. um, because that's what it looks like to be an ally. Um, allyship isn't an ideology. Uh, to be an ally is a verb. You have to do it and you have to do it daily and you have to do it m- most at most urgently um when you um when you're feeling like you don't want to so in that moment of like oh (laughs) do i yeah that's it that's the moment (laughs) yep that's when you step forward that's when you say the thing that's when you say hey man i love you but that's not cool yeah it's Mm -hmm. not okay Mm -hmm. yeah i think we're in that season a lot where where that's that's being required of a lot of us and and for me from a, a from a christian perspective it's it's biblical it's if you don't care for the least of these you're not a part of god's family mm-hmm. so that should be a driving force for us to begin with mm-hmm. um and then the idea that that our society will break down if we don't find a way to bridge the gap between the haves and the haves not have nots or those that have access to resources, I think, Mm -hmm. as you were saying, and those that are not allowed or barred from having access to resources. Yeah. And I think change is really painful for people. Everybody has again, like, I mean, human, every evolution or every shift in the way in which we engage with one another has been painful. And I think organically we are built to avoid pain right survival instincts kick in i don't want to suffer i don't want to and to change means to step into unknowing which again is and i think in american culture we're even more geared toward pain avoidance at all costs Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because we have so much ability to buy medicine or binge on netflix or you you name it yeah yeah and so yeah like do i want to sacrifice my comfort yeah right that that's a question that when people say they're my ally, I will ask, what are you willing to surrender? Because you don't get to be here and keep everything you came with. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> um, and change doesn't have to be um, like loss. I've been having this conversation with friends, but loss doesn't have to be um, negative. Like I've been talking a lot with my friends about like loss is liberation. Yeah. Like when you lose things that don't fit anymore, um, you're freer to find the thing that does. And if we can all step into um, our discomfort towards liberation, um, imagine the things we will find if we put down the things that just don't fit anymore. Yeah. Well, we were able to, we, I started a church 10 years ago, and we were able last year to hand the leadership of that church off to a young couple that's a little bit older than you. And it's been the absolute joy of our life to be able to see the next generation take this thing on and and run. And and so why wouldn't, why can't loss be that? Mm-hmm. That we're giving other people from our resource to have something better than we had. I, I think it's amazing. And mm-hmm. 
So I, I do encourage boomers and even even our older indexers to start saying, how do I how do I pass on a legacy? Because mm-hmm. I cannot take this with me. Mm-hmm. So what am I going to do to sow into the next generation to to see something greater than me come and to be? And there are so many important roles to be filled yeah. because we do need elders. I need people who have seen the last three generation or three decades, right? I need that. I need that guidance. I need that depth. Um, and and I need the invitation to learn from and to um, grow together. Um, and I think it's just about like, can we can we reorganize? Hmm. And can we see ourselves as still contributing and still being, you know, leaders? Because I think right. that's a big thing is folks want to be at the front. And it's like, leadership looks like a lot of things, like a lot of things. Yeah. And it's not always that. I think uh, you're not saying boomers get out of the way. You're not saying white people go away and let everybody else take over. It's, <laughs> it's hey, let's join together and and learn something new and, and figure these things out together. Yeah, I'm saying I don't want anybody to be suffering. Yeah, I don't want anyone to be scared. Um, because I've been scared and it's painful and uncomfortable and um, no way to to live. Um, and can we all? sort of hold hands together to work towards something that feels better for yeah. all of us. Yeah. And it's a little hard sometimes. And and now I know my, now I know my friends are going to say, I knew it, Paul, you've become a liberal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when you see Michael Bloomberg spent half a million dollars on an, an election campaign, and that's not even a dent in, in his wealth. I mean, we, we have the resource. The yeah. resource is available. And yeah, I was just having this conversation a couple weeks ago. At, you know, <laughs> Fresno equity is the the word. Um, and a woman asked a question. I could tell she was it was coming from a place of fear. Like she was really worried um, that if we make this and in her language, right? If we make this easier for um, them, mm. um, what what will I have to? What will I take from me? Um. And I wasn't my best self that day. <laughs> and um, I said, I'm going to push back on that because what you're discounting is is everything it took to even get there. Mm. Right? Um, and uh, I think, like, we have to stop thinking about it as as loss or as, like, us and them or, or we. And it's just... Um, That whole framework um, is what's gotten us to where we are, right? Um, this whole, like, I need to take as much as I can now, which is the, the fallacy, this fallacy of scarcity mm-hmm. um, that capitalism um, necessitates so that we all keep striving, keep consuming, keep feeling like we don't have enough, um, so that we keep playing the game. Right. Um, when in reality, there's beyond enough there's beyond enough and nobody loses anything in fact most of us will get more yeah yeah (laughs) um and so i just i really wish um and again i've i asked myself this question i asked it on my facebook is like how do we hold those with power accountable because they get to opt into accountability yeah do I believe that you're deserving of holding me accountable? Do I believe you're capable? Do I want to, you know, allow this? <laughs> well, I think it's a fascinating conversation, and I, and so I'm thank you for teaching me, letting me learn from you, and be mentored by you uh, through this conversation. And I, I do think, um, and I don't, I don't totally know what this looks like, always, but I think my my wife and I have some sort of bridge application in all of this too say to the the generations like hey let's let's figure this out together but but also i think it's it's important and i do this a lot on the show is just to say you know in a lot of ways we didn't know what we didn't know Mm -hmm. and we haven't done this well for a long long time and and so we're trying to learn now Mm -hmm. to do that better and so just in representation of of a whole people group Mm -hmm. of us you know we're we're sorry we're sorry we just didn't know any better and that's why I showed up today. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because I said, if if that's where you are, 
I believe you. Yeah. So, and, and now we can do the healing work together. I like it. <laughs> and I think we, we do have a role to say to people like you that we approve of you <laughs> and we are proud of you. And we're excited to see what you're going to do with Fresno and California and America because it's going to be amazing. Thank you. We're, we're excited. And there's so much brilliance. Um, and I think I want to, I want to name that like, yeah, things are heavy for us. Um, but what's incredible is that even so, um, we are vibrant and, um, playful and alive and, um, just so magnanimous anyway. Like we shine so bright. Hmm. Um, and that's what I think it feels like to be in community. Um, and to be in my community, um, it is the best tasting food. It is the best music. It is, um, just liberated dancing and movement and play. And like, this is who we are. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Love it. Love it. <laughs> and I, I do love that because that's empowered. And I was talking with somebody the other day about impoverished neighborhoods and she's like, stop it. They're not impoverished. Mm -mm. They're just not. We are rich. We are rich beyond measure. Yeah. Um, rich in ways that I think. Americans um, have been robbed of, um, which is connection, community, um, you know, multi-generational living, um, like this whole, like s this way of, of being in community um, that just doesn't exist in the suburbs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so we are wealthy beyond measure and um, we are all deserving of cultivating communities that feel better for everyone. That's great. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this podcast on the nonpartisan evangelical NPE podcast.com.